Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. And we are recording live from the Sand Hill Crane capital of the world. Yes, it is the over 60 spring break. So, <laughs> you know, break out your, uh, I don't know what, not flip-flops, but... Well, speaking of over 60, it uh, is a beautiful day. It's March 1st, Nebraska's birthday. That's true. It is Nebraska's birthday. I also learned today that it is, you know, one of uh, county attorney county attorney that we practice with often. It's her birthday. She shares it with Nebraska. What is better than that? That's wonderful. Oh, oh. Uh, shout out. Can we do a shout out? Yeah, now? let's do it. Yeah, let's I think we now. should do it okay. now. Uh, Mike Mefford is retiring, and we just got back from his uh, retirement shindig in the courthouse this afternoon. And, uh, you know, I wish him well. I hope he has a, a great time. He's been a wonderful asset to this community, uh, in this area anyway, uh, for a long time. And he's a good person, and I, I respect him a lot. So, I uh, congrats on the retirement, Mike. Yeah, congrats, Mike. I think around 40 40 plus years of service to the law in Nebraska. Yeah. Pretty distinguished career. And yeah, congratulations, Mike. And I hope you enjoy retirement. Uh, an absolute formidable opponent. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. One of those, be- I, the best description I've heard, which um, I think, you know, we could all aspire to do is that he is one of the only people in the state that you could walk at, walk to at 845 in the morning and say, Mike, we got a jury trial at nine o'clock. Can you go do it? And he would walk in there and with confidence, absolutely, and would would pull it off. So, to the sunset, toast to you, Mike. Yeah. All right. Well, that's enough of uh, that. Uh, (laughs) Whatever that was. (laughs) Whatever that was. uh, That'll be a new segment where we shout out specific people who are retiring. Um, okay, so we have an ex parte summary. We got some good ones today from the Supreme Court. Yeah, so we start with the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge versus State of Nebraska and um, inclusion of corrections officers under labor unit. State of Nebraska versus, and I have no idea, so I'm just going to call it Newick. And uh, Newick, and this is about deferred judgments, goody. Criminal defense important. No sirens. Lights and sirens? Oh, no, no. no, no Bells siren. and whistles. Bells and whistles. Bells and whistles. Uh, Clausen versus LOL Investments. Can't dismiss your way to an appeal. LOL. All right. Are you ready to get started? I think so. All right. Go ahead. All right. So we start out with another doozy that I continue to get. Um, it's begun, beginning to seem like I just get uh, opinions that are riddled with acronyms. So I do my best to stumble through them and then inevitably I'm sure do a poor job of summarizing them. But nonetheless, uh, we jump in. So the gist of what is going on in this case is that the Fraternal Order of Police uh, is dealing with the um, Commission of Indu- on Industrial Relations. So there, there's an appeal to the uh, Commission on Industrial Relations regarding what um, bargaining unit these supervisors within the uh, Department of Corrections should be included in. And so that enti- this entire case sur- revolves around that and revolves around um, the CIR or the Commission of Industrial Relations um, opinion and, and clarification on whether or not these um, corrections managers should be included with the uh, Protective Services Bargaining Unit. And basically, this entire opinion, I, and again, I think it's because it's one of these areas of law that isn't explored a ton, 
it focuses a lot on uh, appellate jurisdiction here and whether or not there is appellate jurisdiction, who had uh, correct appellate jurisdiction, um, and exactly where we're getting this appellate jurisdiction from. And again, and I'm, I'm not going to walk through that, but there's a, a ton of language there. And if you have something in regards to the Collective Bargaining Act, um, if you're if you're wrestling with potentially an appeal from there, you know, this is probably going to be a really valuable case for that um, section and area of the law. But I think it's probably going to be a fairly narrow scope opinion as far as how many cases and how many people it's going to affect. Uh, but nonetheless, they go through um, and eventually find that the uh, order is not um, essentially based in uh, enough factual findings. Um, and so they reverse and remand to the CIR uh, to essentially determine um, what is going on in this record, and then to uh, provide an explanation and basis for its ruling as to whether or not these corrections officers should be included in this uh, labor unit uh, for purposes of collective bargaining. And so uh, they, they, the Supreme Court does find that they had uh, jurisdiction over this, that they are able to uh, deal with this CIR ruling, and then they throw it back down and say, okay, you know, we need some more factual basis for why you came up uh, with your decision here um, and uh, the basis for uh, why you had this ruling. So they reverse and remand, send back down. But again, if you have something that's dealing with the Collective Bargaining Act, I think it's going to be uh, a valuable case there. And especially when you're de dealing with appellate issues and taking an appeal from uh, this narrow area, probably going to be super valuable. But again, I don't know how many people it's gonna, going to affect on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, this is State v. Newark. Uh, this is a criminal. If you do criminal defense law, you got to read this case. And if you're a law nerd, you also would be inclined to read this case because it's well written and it's interesting and it uh, tickles your separation of powers constitutional fancies. So if you're a legislative nerd, maybe too. Well, yeah, bit. any kind of any kind of nerd. <laughs> if you're not, if you're uh, have specific plans to watch Dune two this weekend. <laughs> If you're a nerd of the word, you know, you're going to find your way to this opinion. Uh, Mr. Uh, Newick was uh, convicted, and this is important, he, as part of a plea agreement in the district court of, let me make sure I get the district court right, in the district court of Madison County um, on, some felony, on a felony matter, and he was uh, sentenced to 18 months of probation. Now, prior, after his plea was entered and they order the PSI. So the plea is entered. They order the PSI. Then during that time, while they're waiting for the PSI and before the sentencing, the defendant files a motion uh, for a deferred judgment. And there's a deferred judgment process in Nebraska that's been this way, I think, since uh, I want to say 2019, um, 29-2292. And at the sentencing, which was also a hearing on this motion for a deferred sentence, the district court says and finds uh, that the statute is unconstitutional and says that, you know, this deferred sentence, deferred judgment thing that the, the legislature enacted, it's unconstitutional, separation of powers, we can't do it. Um, at the hearing, the county attorney didn't agree to the deferred judgment, and um, the district court said we're not going to hear it because of separation of powers, and then ended up sentencing to 18 months probation. Defendant appeals and it gets picked up by the Nebraska Supreme Court, and they have an opportunity here to look at the constitutionality 
of 29-22-92, which is this deferred sentence, deferred judgment scheme. Uh, scheme. Scheme's a bad thing, but maybe in a, in a good legal contest, it's a, it's a workable solution to find justice for individual defendants uh, through the court of law. So that's this, uh, this apparatus that they, the legislature created for deferred judgments so that there aren't lifelong consequences for some defendants who get convicted of felonies. And they're going to have that discretion be with the court. That's what the legislature said. So we have this uh, greatly written opinion. It's 44 pages. Uh, it's got th- we got three dissents, and the majority opinion holds that this um, deferred sentence statute is constitutional and does not violate separation of powers. It's so I, I'm not going to get into. If you're into this, you got to read it. it we, we've, we're citing Black's Law Dictionary. We're citing the United States Supreme Court. We're comparing federal law to state law. We're looking at other com- the Commonwealth of Kentucky. We're looking at all these wonderful things and definitions of words um, in order to find that uh, the the deferred sentence statute is constitutional. And this I didn't know. There's this history of probation in Nebraska that the court goes into that basically from, I want to say 1913, somewhere around there to 1970-something, the, the whole probation idea was basically a deferred sentence. It's like, well, we're not going to put you in jail. We're going to defer your sentence. We're going to let you uh, be on probation instead of having this immediate punishment. And the uh, courts didn't, it was never appealed. There wasn't a lot of case law on it. At least there wasn't any cited in this opinion as far as from that time as to whether that was acceptable or not. And then um, the, when that's changed in 1970, um, it was never you know, moved back when it was codified in the legislature. The probation uh, matters were codified in the legislature. Um, they never went back and looked at that 1913 to 1970-something timeline. So there wasn't a lot of case law there. But they, they do cite in this opinion and say, well, the fact that there wasn't a constitutional challenge there, while it doesn't prove that it is constitutional, it also you know, it goes towards it being more constitutional than not. That's one small argument that the uh, court uses in order to uh, find that this statute is constitutional. The, this is something I didn't know. I should have probably known this, but the five justices, five judges, have to hold that the statute is unconstitutional in order for it to be declared unconstitutional. Here, at least as far as this opinion is concerned, you have three justices, not five. So narrowly, this uh, deferred sentence uh, statute remains in effect if you have a sentencing and your, your client may benefit from a deferred sentence. I think you seriously have to consider using that statute because basically what the, the, the crux of everything here is the court, after that conviction judgment is entered, after that conviction is entered, the court has the ability to do what it wants as far as sentencing. It doesn't have to follow plea agreements. It doesn't have, or as far as plea agreements regarding sentencing, it doesn't have to follow those. The court can come up with whatever it wants to within certain bounds of, of the law in order to craft a sentence that works for that defendant. Part of that would be the deferred sentence. So that's what uh, they put together here. Mr. Uh, Newick uh, gets to go back and see if the district court will um, defer his sentence or whether he, he's probably served his 18 months probation, I would assume by now. But um, 
they get to go back and see whether he can uh, qualify for that deferred sentence so that he can have that felony removed from his record. So that's the ultimate outcome here. That's one you have to take a look at. Uh, that's a biggie for today. And uh, that's all I have on that one. Okay, next case we come to is Clawson versus LOL Investments. And the basis of what this is, is that uh, Mr. Clawson defaulted on an agricultural uh, loan secured by a deed of trust on a farm property and the property was sold at a trustee's sale. Um, eventually the property is then, um, they, they try to quiet title on this property. And interestingly enough, this is one of these cases where it seems to have just drug on and on and on. The trustee's sale occurred in 2019. This has attempted to be appealed to the Court of Appeals once, to the Supreme Court once. Both times uh, did not have a basis for appeal. And basically, to summarize quickly, what's existed is there's been these issues in regards to attorney's fees on a couple of the claims going both ways. Um, And essentially what happens is that in order to get this appealed, um, both parties dismiss parts of their claim and impart the uh, parts of their claim that involve these attorney's fees saying, hey, we don't want you to deal with these parts of our claim. Just deal with the uh, you know, issue of this trustee sale and whether there should be a forcible sale and detainer or whether or not uh, there should be a quiet title action. And so they leave the um, attorney's fees question and the counterclaims out of it and dismiss those without prejudice in order to try to appeal and get final conclusion on this. And basically what the Supreme court says is you're not allowed to do that. Um, if you dismiss something without prejudice in order to simply try to make it appealable and create a final appealable order that does not in fact create a final appealable order. And so we don't have jurisdiction because there is no final appealable order to deal with. Um, and then they also found that in this case, uh, there was also some money, because the farm ground continued to get farmed or get hayed. Um, and so that money was paid into the court and the court still hadn't dealt with that. And that money was still sitting there. And so they're saying, Hey, you know, there's still issues that are out here to be deal to be dealt with. And until you've dealt with that, uh, there's nothing to appeal from. So, a, a kind of an interesting opi- opinion on final appealable orders and, you know, a little bit of creative lawyering and trying to sneak around that fi- final appealable order issue uh, by simply dismissing the claims that hadn't been dealt with uh, without prejudice and then just saying, hey, give me a ruling, send it back down, and then we can refile and fight over the, the other issues because they're secondary to what we're trying to appeal. Uh, but the uh, Supreme Court said no dice. All right, that's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. We're going to start with the Court of Appeals. I think it's up against you again. Yeah, straight right. back to me. So we have State versus uh, Matthiasen, and this is an appeal from the uh, District Court of uh, Douglas County, where Mr. Uh, Matthiasen was sentenced to uh, 40 to 45 years imprisonment after being convicted of uh, first-degree sexual assault. His appeals are based on insufficiency of evidence and then excessive sentence, and um, his sentence constituting cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, they you know, again, I'm not going to go through the facts here. Very rough facts. Uh, pretty tough opinion to read. But um, as far as the uh, sufficiency of the evidence, they did found that there was sufficiency to, to show uh, that there there was a first degree sexual assault. And then the um, excessive sentence, then un- unconstitutional sentence. The sentence, again, was within the statutory range. The relevant factors were considered. Um, and then 
Uh, they do go into dealing with the Eighth Amendment and, you know, bar- barbaric uh, punishments and extreme punishments. And here they say that, you know, it's it's not grossly dispor- disproportionate uh, to the crime. And because it's within uh, the statutory range, you know, there, there really isn't much of an argument to be made as far as that Eighth Amendment argument of being grossly dispor- disproportionate. And so they affirm. All right. Peterson and Foster Law versus Fiala. Uh, this is a... Uh appeal from a summary judgment in county court that was affirmed in the district court gets up to the Nebraska Court of Appeals here. Mr. Fiala was uh, self-represented um, at various stages uh, at the underneath, but he contracted with Peterson and Foster Law for legal services um, and then failed to pay for those legal services. And then he's also a part of a number of other entities or another a uh, number of other entities, LLCs and other things are involved in uh, this appeal. So the facts are he contracted for these legal services, failed to pay, but this is back in December 2001. They filed a complaint. Um, Peterson and Foster Law did, filed a complaint against Mr. Fiala and all these other agencies uh, for payment uh, and under breach contract and pre- and post-judgment interest. In May of 2022, there was a motion for summary judgment that was filed and then a hearing was scheduled. And then in June, Around that time, um, there was a hearing, and Mr. Fiala appeared and requested a continuance, which was granted. It was uh, moved to July 8th. Um, at Around July 8th, there was another continuance, which was granted uh, at Mr. Fiala's request. And then there was a hearing on August 12th. Mr. Fiala requested a continuance again the night before, and that was denied. Um, and the court received exhibits and um, took the matter under advisement. And then in October, the county court sustained the motion for summary judgment and provided a judgment against Mr. Fiala in the amount of $32,196.33. So we, and plus uh, prejudgment interest and court costs and post-judgment interest at the rate of 4.567%. Now, um, through a limited appearance, he filed, an attorney filed a notice of appeal on behalf of all the defendants, and that was held in the district court, and the district court affirmed. The, uh, then there was appeal here that was uh, done self-represented, and the brief contains 10 assignments of error. There's no summary of the argument. Uh, it doesn't really follow the rules, not listed separately, no proposition of the law to support the arguments, and the main issue that Mr. Fiala argues in his brief is procedural due process. Um, the court here pretty summarily runs through the, uh, d- the procedural due process claim and finds that he was given opportunities. The court granted him two continuances. He was present and had notice of all the hearings. Therefore, um, the procedural due process claim fails and he was not denied due process. And then um, they review the rest of the record for um, plain error, and they find none, so they affirm the county court summary judgment, and that's the end of that one. Okay, next case we come to is Glenn versus Fobble, and this is an appeal from an order uh, of the District Court of Douglas County modifying a decree of dissolution. Um, and on appeal, um, the father, Jeffrey Fobble, is arguing that the court erred in failing to give significant consideration to the testimony of one of the party's children and failing to modify custody. And basically the big part here and the analysis is that the uh, court did not 
abuse its discretion um, in the consideration. And um, they go through the the factors uh, for a material change in circumstances and uh, not modifying um, a um, an order without those material uh, changes in circumstances and then taking into consideration the best interest of the child. And so basically here, um, you know, the, they, they show that the there was no abuse of discretion because the district court had looked at uh, the relevant factors, had looked at the Parenting Act and the requirements for best interests, um, had demonstrated considering uh, the... Um, the parenting time and then basically finding the material change in circumstances. Um, and so in that order, and again, that's where, you know, the value is with these district court orders here, you know, the district court finds that material change in circumstances, circumstances, uh, warranting a modification. And then it makes findings in regards, uh, to, uh, basically, you know, all the things that had changed, um, and the contact and everything within, uh, the, the parenting plan and within its, um, order, and so, again, makes plenty of findings to show that there wasn't an abuse of discretion and that, you know, everything that should have been considered uh, was considered. And then also, um, you know, they, they do deal with when um, pr uh, ch the children's uh, preference is taken into consideration and the weight of that consideration. And, you know, they, they say in the you know, ultimately with a, a trial to the court or an issue that is going to the court, uh, the court's determination um, in regard to whatever fact they find uh, is given great deference. And so, again, here they, they do not find um, any abuse of discretion in declining to modify um, that decree and then um, dealing with the um, sole legal and physical custody issue. And so they affirm. State v. Martinson. This is an appeal out of Thayer County District Court. Uh, Mr. Martinson was uh, convicted after a plea-based conviction for a Class 2A felony for theft, and he contends that the sentence imposed was excessive. Now, this is if it, the meat, I guess, of this uh, opinion would be that the contention that the state violated the plea agreement. The plea agreement indicated that in exchange for the plea, the state would agree, and probably a number of other things, the state would agree to stand mute at sentencing. So... They enter this plea, it's back in 2020 in the before time, and then uh, there's a failure to appear in November 3rd, 2020. Now, not until the spring of 2023 does Mr. Martinson get arrested in Wyoming for his uh, warrant on his failure to appear for his sentencing back in November of 2020. So he was brought to in front of the court on June 6th, and he... Uh, they went forward with sentencing on August 1st, 2023. Now, the state did not stand mute at the hearing uh, on the sentencing. The state uh, said that the PSI or PSR was recommending probation, and they said, um, well, he's not a suitable candidate. He has other things uh, going on, and he they suggest a straight court sentence. Now, the district court here um, sentenced him to uh, 10 to 15 years imprisonment to run consecutively to any other sentence he's being that's going to be served for that him. There was no objection when the state made the uh, recommendation that they made and did not stand mute. There was no objection made, and the court has three assignments of error to look, look into. Number one is the state's failure to abide by the plea agreement. Number two is the excessive sentence. And number three is the ineffective assistance of counsel for failing to object uh, at the time of sentencing. 
Now, this the the did we call them law portion? Okay, the law portion that would be important here is regarding what to do if you have an agreement at, at, that the state needs to do at sentencing. If you have a plea bargain that uh, requires the state to do something at sentencing, like remain silent, and they don't, and they violate it. It says exactly here, it's quoting State v. Fennin, a 2009 case, which lays out the procedure of how to properly do that um, and, and what remedies would be available to you at that point. So the um, here they're saying since there wasn't a failure, there wasn't an objection and it didn't ab- abide by the State v. Fennin, then there was no failure to abide by the plea agreement, and that is uh, without merit. Move on to excessive sentence. It's within the range. There is, uh, it's not, uh, that assignment of error is also without merit. Now they get to ineffective assistance of counsel. And they're saying here, based on the record, they can't say that the um, reason for not objecting was not strategic, that there may have been a strategic reason at that point in time to not object to the state um, violating the plea agreement at sentencing. And therefore, um, they don't have the, a sufficient record to rule on the ineffective assistance of counsel claim and um, that the issue is preserved for further, appear, uh, further proceedings, but on direct appeal, the uh, record is insufficient. Otherwise, uh, Mr. Martinson's conviction and sentence were affirmed. And I believe that's it. I didn't even tell you what week it was. It is February, Today's February, the 1st. February 27th, 2024. To March first, two thousand twenty-four. I hope everybody enjoyed that extra day. Oh wow! Comes in. Oh wow! Just. <laughs> well, I thought you know, Sandy. Oh Cranes. boy, yeah. Bird is the word. I guess. Um, March comes in like a lamb, so out like a lion. Is that right? I think that's what's going on. Is that what they say? I would call today a lamb. Yeah, today's a lamb. I expect. Um, I expect a few more snowflakes before the end of March. That's yeah. been my prediction, my my uh, farmer's almanac prediction. Oh, we have a new sponsor this week. I didn't know if you knew that. No, I did not know okay, that. Okay, well, our sponsor this week, this is uh, Point Two Law Review, brought to you by uh, Klein, Brewster, Brandt, and Messersmith. Wow. That rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a mouthful. Real well, alphabet soup. Well, welcome. Uh, if you didn't catch the hint, uh, Mr. Messersmith is with the law firm now, and we're very happy to have you. Well, I've always been with the law firm. I know, but yeah. like on a more, you know. Yeah. <laughs> basis. Yeah. <laughs> on a named basis. Yeah, on a named basis. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. We have, we still have offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. Right? Yeah, we do. And uh, let's see. Anything else going on? I don't think so. We'll have some March Madness coming up. I'm sure we can discuss that. I have not tried a new chicken sandwich in a while. So if anybody has a restaurant where I've got to try a new chicken sandwich or a fast food chicken sandwich, I'll try to get that done so we can bring back uh, a chicken sandwich review here soon. It's been a while. Chickens are birds, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're birds. Chickens count. Look at me try and make some... uh a silk purse out of this sow's ear of yeah. this absolutely horrible song. Just an absolutely wonderful <laughs> tune. I'm sure everyone is, you know, even the ones who just want to listen to the banter if given like, up I'm on out. us now. Yep. Uh, I'm out. Okay. Uh, I think that's it. Go back to episode one for the disclaimer. Anything else, Carson? I don't think so. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.